Down the right field line. Pretty well hit. LeVard way. It's the right way here tonight. Yogi Berra said it's 90% mental. The other half is physical. My name is Ryan LeVarnway, Major League Catcher and Minor League Grinder, and I've spent the last 15 years playing professional baseball while evolving my mindset. I'm fascinated by optimizing that 90%. In this show, I'll talk to elite athletes and mindset coaches about what makes them tick and how they've overcome obstacles in their own careers on the way to finding success. This is Finding the Way. Hey guys, welcome to Finding the Way. This is Ryan LaVarnway, and today my guest is Ian Kinsler, 14-year Major League veteran, four-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glover, World Series champion, World Baseball Classic champion, Olympian, and Texas Rangers Hall of Famer. That's quite the resume. Ian, thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Barney. I appreciate it. Uh, so we were actually teammates on the Olympic team, and before that I had heard the legend of Ian Kinsler, and obviously that resume reads like reads like a Hall of Fame resume to me. Obviously you're a Texas Ranger Hall, Hall of Famer already. I think probably a baseball Hall of Famer. Any list that has the top second baseman of all time has you on it. It's pretty amazing. Um, but what I was most amazed about was before I did my research on you for this podcast is I wouldn't have known that you were one of the best players of all time. You're super humble. You're a great teammate. What what is your priority when you're when you're playing with guys or you're becoming a leader on a team or now that you're making the transition to manager? What is it that you're you're trying to exude? Yeah, I think the most important to me, first and foremost, is just play to win. Right. Um, whatever play you're making on the field, you're doing it to win the game. It's not a selfish act. It's to to win the game. Secondly, um, I really don't believe in like a pecking order of, you know, you get in the big leagues, you've played in the big leagues. And a lot of times in the clubhouse, there's big poppy and then everybody else is kind of below him and he kind of does whatever the hell he wants. And, you know, everyone else has to show up for team stretch, but big poppy might not have to. Um, I'm not a big believer in that. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in unity and, um, you know, I think respect is huge. You, you respect Big Poppy or you respect the guy who's who's the lead of the clubhouse has, has done the most. But um, as far as a pecking order, I really believe that you can learn from the youngest guy um, if you're the if you're the oldest vet and vice versa. And if everybody's working together um, and having fun and their priority is winning, I believe uh, good things happen. Yeah, I, I can totally see that and agree with it. As far as if you're playing to win the game, you know, everyone should have the same goals in mind. Everyone should be working together. Um, I have a couple of quotes from, from you here when you're talking about your power numbers are nice, but you're, you're most pleased that you've been consistent. Home runs come from having a consistent approach. You also said, I want to be an elite type of player and not just for one year. How is it that you were able to be such an elite five-tool player and, you know, you talk about your competitiveness, but it's also competitiveness over a long period of time. How are you able to sustain that greatness? Um, to be honest with you, I think a lot of it has to do with playing a team sport. You know, when you are held accountable by your teammates, your teammates expect you to be at a certain level. Uh, they expect your off-season workouts to be at a certain level. They expect you to show up in spring training ready to go, um, in shape, 
and all of those things were driving forces for me because I, I just didn't want to let anybody down. Um, I didn't want to be a guy that was behind the eight ball. Uh, and so I think that's kind of what drove me to play at a high level every, you know, year in and year out was the responsibility of, uh, you know, leading off a game, being the leadoff hitter for the Rangers and, and a little bit Detroit, being that catalyst, the guy that can run, you know, so I, I had to train my speed and stay on top of it um, because that's what my teammates expected of me. So I think that was a big part of, you know, the driving force to play well year in, year out. But, you know, also I just, I, I love the game. I love doing it. Um, so I think that really helped. Yeah, that's 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 it. Accountability to your teammates. That's that's the the beautiful thing about a team sport, and that's the beautiful thing about having workout buddies in the off season too, right? If you had to work out on your own, it's a little bit harder to get your butt to the gym. Did you have someone that was your off season buddy that you worked out with over the years? Yeah, I did. So it's funny you say that because now that I'm home and I've been retired for you know three years, four years, or whatever it is. I can't get in, I can't get my butt in the gym. <laughs> I have no reason, you know. There's got to be a reason. Like when my, my when my wife asked me, "Hey, do you want to go for a walk?" I'm like, "Where are we going?" You know, <laughs> there has to be a goal. There's got to be a goal. We can't just like walk around the block. Um, so getting to the gym is very tough for me because I don't have those workout buddies that we're we're talking about in in Texas. Um, we were really good at it. Everybody kind of stayed local, uh, worked out at the ballpark in Arlington. And we had a really good group of guys that, that stuck around, um, and pushed each other. And then when I was traded to Detroit, obviously I couldn't do that anymore. So I ended up going to, uh, a facility called Michael Johnson's performance. And they had a baseball group of guys, um, Pro, pro guys that were there we all worked out together and pushed each other um so that was that was always something that i needed uh i'm still trying to get over that that hump of being self uh controlling i guess or um being able to being able to push myself without uh without a reason or a responsibility of a, of a peer but you know working out with somebody else it definitely makes the workout go by faster. It definitely pushes you to keep up with them if they're better, you know, at something than you are. Um, and it also helps with, with, if you're better than them, it also helps to, to push them. So you can feel all of those energies. Um, so I think that's huge. If you need a, a goal to reach towards, maybe you and I can sign up for a, a triathlon. I enjoy doing Ironmans. I don't know if you're into that. Yeah, see, like, you're a different breed. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could do one i got josh zide uh also a teammate of ours to do an iron man with me a couple of years ago he thought i was nuts he had never swum he had never been in the swimming pool and, and even swum one lap before and, and he completed the the half iron man with me yeah i saw him training I, he was he was posting all of his training his biking and his swimming running and stuff and i'm like yeah. what does this guy do yeah well that was my fault a <laughs> <laughs> boy nice work um all right, so obviously we talked about your resume. I'm not going to stroke your ego anymore, even though you're a super humble guy. But let's talk about the things you had to overcome because it wasn't a smooth ride the whole way, I'm sure. As I, as I was reading your, your Wikipedia page and, and your MLB page, 
you had some injuries along the way. You had asthma as a child that, that sent you to the hospital a few times. You had to be on a breathing machine. In your big league career, you went to the injured list for a, a thumb dislocation, foot stress fracture twice, a groin, a hamstring, a herniated disc. Uh, this, this is not, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't easy for you. When you had these setbacks, how, how did you get back into the game? How did you get back to top form? And where was your mind at along the way? I think a lot of that has to do with the training staff that you're working with um, and what they bring daily because train when you're, when you're injured, going to the training room daily is, it can be taxing. It's becomes boring, monotonous, um, all the things that you don't want as an athlete, it can become that. So a lot of it was the training staff. You know, a lot of those in- injuries happened in Texas. I think in Detroit, I was only on the injured list once uh maybe twice both i think both for hamstrings but um you know early in your career my first one was i dislocated my thumb my rookie year like two weeks in and they sent me to arizona to the spring training complex and talk about boring and monotonous i mean the the rangers are in surprise arizona and i don't know how many people have been to surprise arizona but there's not much of a surprise there (laughs) the surprise nothing yeah, that's the surprise is that there is not one. Um, <laughs> so being there for a month, you know, a lot of it is the training staff and an energy they bring and, you know, day in and day out, having fun with it, uh, you know, staying, staying motivated. And then once you're back healthy, you know, I think there's always those nerves of am I – am I ready to step back into the game? Am I ready to see 96 again? Am I ready to steal a second or, you know, make a diving play and, and trust your body um, from the injury that you just had? And early in my career, a lot of that was rehab assignments. You know, you get to go on these rehab assignments and, and test your body and make sure that you're okay. Later in your career, you have the option of going or not going, and I usually chose not to go. Um just because I wanted to be around the team and it's just a lot easier than going to a spring training complex. So coming back, I think, you know, when you first get back on the field, there's always those questions, but they seem to go away in the first game or two pretty quickly. And then you're kind of just back in, in the field of things. Um, but yeah, when you, when you get hurt, those first couple of games back are a little nervy. Yeah. I, I hurt myself when I was in the big leagues, I broke my hamate. I had to have surgery on the hook of the hammock in my left hand and being at the spring training complex, it was boring as you say, and isolating and you're, you have no peers because you're with the younger players that don't have the same experiences, aren't in the same part of their life as you are. But also what I found was that I've relied so much on my body and I've had so much of my self identity tied into, you know, being able to do the things well that I've done my whole life. Did you find uh, the psychological battle as well as the physical battle? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a given whether you're injured or not. Um, there's always the psychological battle um, of staying of staying consistent and staying even keel um, and trying not to let emotions you know, distract you. It's all, you know, since we were little kids, we were told to eliminate distractions, whatever that may be. It, it could be emotional. Um, it could be the other team yelling at you, and, you know, screaming at you and, and trying to, you know, get, get you going. Um, 
it could be a number of things. And so since you're a little kid, you've been trying to eliminate those distractions. And, you know, I think psychologically and, and especially psychologically, but a little bit physically, you just try to eliminate, eliminate those things, um, as best you can. And, and I think the guys that can do that the best are usually really good players. So, so what do you mean by, what do you mean by eliminate distractions? Like, so you're, in Arizona, let's say, let's dive into this. You're in Arizona. There's nothing there. The surprise, nothing. You you have none of your teammates. What distractions are you trying to avoid in particular? Well, you don't want to go out. You don't want to start going to bars and making that part of your routine. Um, you don't want golf to be important to you at that time. Uh, you know, you don't want food to be kind of take over and you just start crushing everything. Um, so you, you really have to be almost more regimented. It, it, it turns into more of an off season mode where you wake up, you got your schedule down, right? Like you wake up, you eat this certain breakfast, you go to you know facility, you get this work in, you get your ultrasound, you get your ice, you get your heat and you go to the weight room, do all your corrective exercises, eat lunch, do whatever you need to do on the field to get ready back to the training. You know, you're just super regimented. Um, and so if you can eliminate everything and allow that to take place every day, your recovery is probably going to be faster and, you know, better. Yeah. I think Nick Saban, I believe is from the, the Arizona, Arizona, blah, Alabama crimson tide said it best. He said, if you want to be successful, there really are not a lot of choices. Right. So that's what it sounds like you're saying. Like, you know what the right thing to do is. You know what the right thing to eat is. You know when the right time to go to sleep is, in the gym, all these things. And then don't make other choices. Don't give yourself the option to go out and drink alcohol, which is going to slow your recovery. Don't give yourself the option to miss some sleep. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nick Saban, I listen to his stuff all the time. He, he has some some great quotes. I really, I really appreciate him. There's a reason why he's been so successful. Um, and his players continue to be successful at the next level. So, yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying is just just trying to eliminate all of those distractions. It could be, you know, it could be a girlfriend that's mad because you're not there and you're in Arizona and maybe she's somewhere else and now you have to deal with the, you know, emotions of that. Um, and you don't want to, you don't want to eliminate that, but you just have to not let it, take over your day or bother you um when there's things that need to get done absolutely totally agree um so let's go back to your your journey up to the big leagues again it wasn't a straight path necessarily you got drafted out of high school but in in a round where you didn't think it was worth going pro yet you got you started at a junior college and then you got drafted again and again you thought it's not worth it to go pro I, i need to play a little bit more college you transferred to asu uh, and then you transferred again to the University of Missouri. Talk to me about going from one place to another, making a new first impression everywhere you go, having to earn your stripes on the team everywhere you go. And I think a lot of young players, Little League, high school, they think that there's one straight path to accomplish their dreams, right? They think they need to go to a four-year university. They need to play all four years. It needs to be a top 25 ranked team. That's not necessarily the case. No. I mean, guys are scattered all over the big leagues. 
that were late round draft picks, went to junior college, went to some, you know, Lewis and Clark or some place that, yeah, you know, um, there's all different kinds of paths to the big leagues. And for me, you know, in high school, I, I was drafted, which was somewhat of a surprise because I was not being recruited by Division One schools. So I wasn't expecting much. My best friend at the time, his name was Brian Anderson, and he ended up becoming a first-round draft pick out of the University of Arizona by the White Sox, and we thought he was going to get drafted. So we were sitting around the computer back in the day. It's like AOL dial-up, uh, listening to the radio and seeing if Brian gets drafted, and he never gets drafted. We were listening the second day, and then my name gets called. Um and at the time, there was a thing called draft and follow, it was called. So there was there was no negotiation at all. Um, I really didn't have an opportunity. And I and plus, like you said, I didn't feel like I was ready at all. You know, I was probably as tall as I am now, but 165 pounds. I was not <laughs> ready. And what are you now? Go, uh, 195. Okay. Like, I tried to play at 205. Okay, so you put ended up putting on 40 more pounds for your, at your peak. Yeah, exactly. I just didn't feel strong enough, ready to swing a wood bat, just all the things. I think, um, you know, and, and then junior college came around, and that was really a, a blessing for me to not be recruited by Division ones, to be honest, and, and end up going to Central Arizona because there are no practice rules in junior college. You can go to the field as, as often as you want. Um, for me, school was easier there, I think, you know, my experience at Arizona State and Missouri, I wasn't a great student. I was C's. And in junior college, I was able to play baseball as much as I want and get get respectable grades, um, which was, was huge for me because I needed to be in the cage. I needed to be on the field taking ground balls. And so I tried to utilize my time as best I could. And, um, you know, there were, there were coaches that there – uh, assistant coaches, volunteer assistants that really pushed me and were always at the field. So that was that was huge. That was super beneficial. Um, and then my second year went back to junior college, transferred at the winter break to Arizona State. Uh, and Dustin Pedroia was there at the time, and he was a freshman. And they wanted to they wanted to move him to second and they wanted to put me at shortstop and I came in and just played terrible for like the first seven, six, seven games. And so I sat the bench the rest of the year and I felt, and Dustin went to short and won like freshman pack 10 player of the year. He crushed it. So that's what, that's what brought me to Missouri. I felt like in order to get drafted in my junior year, I needed to be at a new place, a place where I could, you know, play every day um, and make an impact and that's what that's what took me to Missouri. It was in a good conference, you know. It was it was a good competition, and I had an opportunity to play shortstop. Um, and at the time in my life, I didn't know where Missouri was on the map. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know it's in the middle somewhere. Uh, what conference do y'all play? And you know what's going on here? Um, you know. And then I heard I heard big 12 and i was in because i knew you play against you know a&m and texas and oklahoma oklahoma state nebraska so i knew it was going to be good competition that's what brought me there 
And, and you just mentioned another thing. You talked about playing shortstop and how Dustin Pedroia also played shortstop. And then the two of you are now, both of you, in the top 20, top 25 second baseman that ever played in the major leagues. Again, young people that are listening to this, maybe they don't get to play the position that they want to or they're really focused on specializing. Talk to me about the transition. Was it was it hard mentally for you to shift or was it something that you always thought might be an option or, or how did you deal with that mentally and, and why did you end up making the transition? So I think from my experiences, young players should not want to be attached to one position because I was, I was attached to the shortstop all the way until triple A and my transition to second base was difficult because I had only played, I had only strictly played shortstop my whole life. I played one season, like a half a season in my junior year in high school at second base. Um, that was it. So my transition to second base was awkward and it took me a while to get used to the position. So for me, like my son's 11 years old, he's a good player. Um, but I, I try to tell the coaches he needs to play center. He needs to play third and second and short. He needs to pitch a little bit like wherever left field, right field, wherever. Um, I think it's super beneficial to, you know, play multiple positions. Even if you are the best player on the field and you're playing shortstop every game, you know, it's, it's good to experience different angles um, and different, different sides of the game, different movements, you know, whatever when you're in the outfield thinking of where to throw the ball for the cutoff and that, that only helps you as a shortstop in the long term. Um, and my transition, like I said, wasn't very easy. There's a guy named Mike Brumley who was with the Rangers when I made my transition from short to second and triple a. And I went back to instructional league and only worked on second base. I didn't, I didn't pick up a bat. I don't think. And we were out there, Every day at 8 a.m., Mike Brumley's out there with the dip in, firing, ready to go, plays uh, <laughs> and doing all kinds of stuff. And you know, it was it was slower than I wanted it to be, but it was definitely the right move. And I think the transition was because my arm strength wasn't superior; it wasn't great. It was probably average, um, and it played up at second base. You know, I, I had pretty good, pretty good arm strength for a second baseman, but at short. You know, that, that led to a lot of errors, um, you know, a lot of quick release type plays. When you're going in the hole, you got to have a pretty strong arm to play shortstop. So that transition was, was a good thing for me. I wasn't happy about it at the time, but, you know, obviously in the long run, it was, it was the right move. Can we, di- can we dive into that? You weren't happy about it at the time. What were you feeling at the time, and how were you convinced to make the move? Well, I was convinced to make the move because that was my path to the big leagues. Um, it was as simple as that. I wasn't happy about it because I, maybe because I was uncomfortable. I really thought about why I was unhappy about it, but I think it was a little bit of a shot to the ego as an athlete. You feel like shortstop's the captain and, you know, you're the best player on the field and you're the best athlete and all these things that go into playing shortstop. Um, and I had definitely bought into all that. And so I think it was a little bit of a shot to the ego. And I think also because I was a little uncomfortable, you know, I think I didn't know what I was doing at second base and I knew what I was doing at shortstop, uh, at least in my mind. And, 
you know, I think I, I, I was just a little upset about it. But once once I got over that and knew that was my path to the big leagues and, you know, Michael Young was at shortstop established, then it was, you know, complete commitment to, to trying to figure out second base. So it was just once you tried something new, you kind of got the hang of it, you, you felt more athletic again, but you also were made to understand that this is going to benefit you in the long run. So it was easier for you mentally to handle it. Yeah, absolutely. I knew that I was going to be in my place um, if I wanted to be a major league player. Which a, a major league player you were, and a very good one. Um, and and I, I have one more quote from you that I want to ask you about. When you first got promoted to double A, you're quoted as saying, uh, when I first got called up, there were a million things running through my head. I was nervous. I, my hands were sweating. It was really exciting, but I didn't know what to expect. I was a little nervous that all of a sudden I wouldn't be able to hit. And, <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a quote and that's a, a feeling that anybody that's ever done something that they put up on a pedestal can relate to. Anybody that's ever maybe felt a little unsure of whether they belong at that level can relate to. Um, can you talk about that and can you talk about how you got over it? Because you ended up being named player of the month that month that, that you were quoted as that. Yeah, I think you get into, I was in Clinton, Iowa in a ball, uh, before I got called up to double a, and I was in a groove, like the, probably the best groove of my life. Um, I was hitting 400 at the time of the all-star break. I had all kinds of doubles and I, I, I felt like I couldn't get out. Um, so moving to double a brought on the hand sweats and the nervousness, which then led to doubt, you know, and wondering, am I going to be able to repeat what I'm doing in a ball at this level? Is it going to work is what, what I'm doing, um, and what I'm, what's making me successful there going to make me successful here, you know, at a, at a new level. Uh, and especially you skip high A and you go to double A and everyone knows double A is where all the talent is. That's kind of the new level, right? Um, a lot of guys can go from double A to the big leagues, but from A ball to double A, it, it just at the time felt like a bigger leap. Um, you know, and then <clears throat> you just kind of go through in your mind and mentally, you kind of go through all the things that that wise people have taught you in the game that it's the same game that it is in a ball the plates the same the ball's the same the bases are you know all the everything's the same and prepare the same way you will make adjustments to the game the speed of the game and and it'll come quickly um and so you just you just trust that and once you find a little bit of, of success and your confidence is is growing it's it becomes just like like that just an, another game yeah i, I mean I, I definitely feel like it's a little bit of imposter syndrome where i've been called up and sent down 26 times from the major leagues and every time i get called up even the 25th or 26th time i was nervous i was like do, can i still do this am i gonna succeed how much of an opportunity am i gonna be given to succeed because baseball is very much a you're hot or you're cold type of sport so how can I time my hot streak with this limited opportunity? Right. Um, so it's, it's like, like, yeah, go ahead. It's like trying to time a hot streak when you're going to Coors Field or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, 
like I, I need to hit three homers while I'm in Coors Field. Uh, and then you change you change your approach a little bit, and those outside factors, you know, you try to limit those as best you can. I mean, you know better than anybody. Um, there's always that there's always that little bit of doubt, but I think that's what's motivating for athletes, or at least you know, good ones that can overcome that. It, I think that's that's the driving part of the driving force. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Ian Kinsler, 14-year MLB vet, all-star, gold glover, World Series champion, Olympian, Texas Rangers Hall of Famer. If there is one mantra that you have said to yourself over the years or that you live by, something that motivates you, gets you going, gets you over the hump, that you could share with a little leaguer or a high school player or somebody listening to this right now, what would it be? It would be... It would be the, my dad used to tell me all the time uh, that you have to prove it. So if you do something really well and you have a really good game, the next game you have to prove it. You have to prove that it wasn't just a fluke. Um, so for me, I mean, on my glove, I would get stitched, prove it. Uh, so that was just something that I lived by is that like, like you said earlier, you know, I, I guess one of my quotes was, I just didn't want to be a good player for one year. So you're a good player for one year. The next year, you got to prove it. You got to continue to prove it every day that you're you're capable of, of what you're doing. Um, and so I would say as far as mantra goes, that would be the one that, that stands out in my head. And, you know, that's something that my dad taught me and, and something that I wrote on my glove. So I would I would go with that. That's beautiful. I, I love it, man. I appreciate your time. Uh, you talked about having that competing mindset, playing to win, earn your respect, don't necessarily just believe in the hierarchy. Uh, that It's not always a straight path. Lots of players go the JUCO route. Lots of players get hurt. You can come back. And ultimately, you have to prove it. That Ian, sounds great. Ian Kinsler, thank you so much. And uh, this has been Finding the Way. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Finding the Way with Ryan LaVarnway. Find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.